And thank you, Sergeant Pepper, for that introduction. We're going to deal today with increment 146, Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. And we'll be going to Hebrews 6.4 one more time. And also, I really want to focus in on one of my most treasured passages, and that's 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 18 for today's subject. And today's subject will be introduced in the first sentence, so let's pray. Father, we entrust ourselves to your care. We entrust ourselves to your teaching of us, and we pray that you will use today's message to teach us your ways, to teach us your mind, your thinking, and most of all, to focus our attention on your beloved Son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We ask this in his name. <clears throat> the Bible is a dangerous book. My grandfather, on my dad's side, had a room in his house with a red tile floor. I have extremely sharp memory of it. Some of the tiles were peeling up on the sides. In one corner of the room, he had a fly-tying desk with a lamp and drawers full of tiny, multicolored, feather-like things and hooks that he tied for fly fishing in the Battenkill River. In that same corner of that red-tiled room, he had a reloading station where he reloaded ammunition, his own ammo. At the other end of the room, he had a double-wide wooden gun cabinet. I don't think there were many times when I went into my grandparents' home, they were just around the corner from us in North Bennington, Vermont, when I didn't go in to check out the guns in that cabinet. It was like I was fascinated with them every time I saw them. And if I had a friend or two with me, I would proudly show them and my grandfather would allow me to show them all those guns under strict rules of safety. He had a 3040 Krag, which is a phenomenally historical rifle now. It's a rifle that was used in the Spanish-American War. It was developed for the U.S. Army in the 1890s. And one of my great uncles, I think, used it for deer hunting. He had a bolt-action 30-06. He had a lever-action Winchester 3030, a Spanish-made double-barreled side-by-side 20-gauge shotgun with a light blonde stock and gold-plated triggers. He had a 12-gauge double-barreled side-by-side shotgun and a 16-gauge pump shotgun with a grooved and rounded slide. He had two 6.55 bolt-action Swedish Army rifles that my great uncle bought for $35. One of the stocks was cracked and my uncle fixed it by gluing in pieces of a Joy dishwasher bottle. And so it had two white repair lines in it. He bought those from a dealer for $35. The Swedish Army had no more use for those 6555s. And I shot a little spike horn buck with one of those 6.555s when I was 14 years old. 
My grandfather also had in that same cabinet a 222, not 223, a 222 bolt action rifle with a Leopold scope, which was great for long range target shooting and iron head and also for woodchucks. And I use that term advisedly because that's what New Yorkers called us Vermonters, woodchucks. And there was a very heavy target rifle with an octagonal barrel, very thick barrel and heavy, with iron flip-up sights. And I personally owned a Remington nylon stock 22 that held about 17 rounds that you loaded with into a tube that could be rapid-fired. And my friends and I had so many, many, many hours of fun plinking with that 22 and with their 22s. My friends and I could shoot very near our homes. We could walk to places to shoot where there were fields nearby where we could set up cans and other items to shoot at. Bricks of 500 long rifle 22 cartridges could be bought very cheaply then. I remember one day we bought like 13 bricks of 500 to shoot. And so... They were much cheaper back then, of course. I also owned a 20-gauge single-shot break-top shotgun and will never forget the first time, strictly supervised by my dad, I fired a slug into a pine tree from that gun and then assessed the damage. We kids who grew up around guns and having guns and shooting guns knew one thing. And we knew it very well. We knew that guns were dangerous. And we were trained first and foremost and repeatedly with safety and respect for what a gun could do. One principle that I learned and that I carry, me, carry with me to this day, the gun is a dangerous item and no one who is not seriously trained in its use and safety should ever fire one or really get near one. Another thing I've learned, and here's our analogy, the Bible is a dangerous book. It too must be handled with careful expertise and not interpreted or preached or taught by the untrained and certainly not by the unstable. While in Bible school in Western Massachusetts in the 70s of the last millennium, I memorized the second epistle of Peter. I probably couldn't recite it verbatim today, but I have its meaning and its message deep in my heart. Consequently, I was impressed with every verse of that short epistle and every section of that letter, and I treasure it to this day. Perhaps most impressive to me about Second Peter were the first four and the last four verses of that epistle that formed kind of an inclusio. The last four particularly. In, clo in the closing verses, the author of Second Peter spoke of, quote, our beloved brother Paul, who according to the wisdom given to him wrote in all of his epistles of many things around the theme of the patience of the Lord and salvation. I'm paraphrasing now. 
That's 2 Peter 3.15 to 16a. Then he made a very special point to observe that in Paul's epistles are, quote, some things that are hard to understand. Peter, or the author of that epistle, then added the warning that uneducated and unstable teachers were already distorting Paul's writings at that time. He wrote that these are the same kind of teachers who also, quote, twist and distort the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. 2 Peter 3.16 The Bible is a dangerous book. Those who misuse it or twist its meaning to rationalize their own lusts or support their preconceived ideology or conform to their own philosophy or jam it into their own limited horizon, do so to their own destruction and needless to say, to the ruin of those who follow them There always seems to be an available group of lemmings that are willing to pay attention to false and sometimes even to bizarre doctrines. Jesus called them the blind following the blind. The writer of 2 Peter then wrote, and we'll get a little more detailed in 2 Peter 3.17, Therefore, you beloved, now here's the word I want to look at, agapitoi. You beloved, and for reasons that will appeal to Hebrews readers, agapetoi. Peter uses it, well, with some frequency. It's found in 1 Peter 2.11 and also 1 Peter 4.12. And 2 Peter, it's found in 3.1, 3.8, 3.14, and 3.17. So it becomes a sobriquet or a name for his audience, agapetoi. Loved ones, beloved. The reason I'm saying this is because beloved is used once in Hebrews, and it's right in our passage that we're going to glance at today, Hebrews 6, 9. So Peter says, Therefore you, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that is, knowing that there are distorters of the Scriptures, be on your guard so that you're not carried away. That word is interesting because it sort of is the opposite of Hebrews 6.1, carried along to completion. This is carried away. Be aware, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of the unprincipled. Now that word in the Greek conjures the idea of teachers without a moral conversion, people who have not had conversions, especially the moral conversion. The error of the unprincipled and fall from, now here he uses the word ekpipto, another interesting word, E-K-P-I-P-T-O, ekpipto, to fall from, ekpipto, to fall from. And the reason I was drawn to that, my attention was piqued there, is because this word fall from is sort of like the word para pipto in Hebrews 6, 6, to fall away from or fall alongside from. 
And so parapipto, you see the word pipto means to fall, ek means from, para means alongside, and then pipto, P-I-P-T-O. So there is a kind of an affinity there. In fact, there is a profound affinity between the Petrine epistles, 1st and 2nd Peter, and Hebrews. Another reason why it's profitable to look at this today. And so he goes on to say, and fall from your own stability. Instead, he says in verse 18, or but, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory. Glory is another catchword, because we find in Hebrews 2.9, we, we see Jesus crowned with glory, doxa, and honor, glory, doxa. You get that word doxology from that, a passage of scripture that is to the glory of God or to the praise of God. And so once again, but grow in grace. Please notice that because the distorters of the scriptures usually eliminate that radical centrality of scriptures, grace, and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory both now and to the day of the age. I'm going to sneak in something here that will be putting another question to you in a minute both now and to the day of the age. This too reminds me of Hebrews in 13.8, where Jesus Christ is said to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word forever here means to the day of the age. Some translate it the day of eternity. My question is, what age is he speaking of here? And my question is a twofold one. And is the age to which he's referring that which we could call a third age? age. We've asked the question before, is Jesus Christ's great high priesthood needed forever or just for the age? Is there a time when he is no longer has to advocate or mediate for us? And the answer seems to be, yes, there will be a time. And that introduces the concept of, and here it is, a third age. There is the present evil age, there is the age to come or future world, and then there is a third age. The possibility of a third age exists in the fact that in 1 Corinthians 15:24 to 28, when the end comes, Jesus the Son submits himself to the Father and submits all that he has reigned over to the Father so that God may be all in all. When God is all in all, is there a need of mediation between Jesus the Son of God and humankind? That's a question, something that's profitable to think about. And also Ephesians 2.7 does not talk about the age to come, but ages plural to come. So are we to challenge our imaginations with the unfolding of many ages in the future, each of which will reveal something about God, something of his love that we never imagined in this age and could not even imagine. First Kings 10 comes to mind when the Queen of the South said to Solomon, the half has not been told me about the glory of your kingdom. If Solomon's kingdom was greater than the imagination could conceive, then how much more the greater than Solomon, our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's a side path. So both now and to the day of the age. Amen. Now this is the concluding section of Second Peter. 
is chock full of invaluable advice. It is noticeable here that the distorters of the scripture are evidently, have evidently not concentrated, as Paul did in all of his epistles, on grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Consequently, those distorters and torturers of Scripture did not attribute to Jesus Christ the unending glory that is due him. The Bible is a dangerous book. You don't handle it properly if you're not undergoing conversions, training, that is. By saying that the Bible is a dangerous book, now watch this and listen, by saying that the Bible is a dangerous book, I'm not saying that people shouldn't read their Bible. But reader, beware. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that the Word of God is alive, energetic, and sharper than any double-edged blade. Energetic like electric, sharper than any blade. You're dealing with something alive and energetic and sharper than any double-edged blade. So you don't just swing it around in a social setting. You don't just misquote it. You don't just quote it outside of context. And you don't read it that way either. Jesus said that his words are spirit and they are life and that the flesh profits nothing. And part of the meaning of that is that the flesh profits nothing in understanding those words or interpreting those words, or we would say interpreting the Bible, John 6.63. Reading the Bible without openness to the Holy Spirit is also like handling, loading, firing a gun without the supervision of a trained instructor. The Spirit of Truth, as he's called by Jesus in John 14.16 and 16.13, is the divine teacher who guides the Bible reader and the Bible student into all truth, John 16, 13. And all truth is none other than the truth that has incarnate meaning in Jesus. John 1, 14 and John 14, 6. Those who teach the scriptures to others without the leading of the Spirit are like a man who fires a powerful gun at a long-range target without properly sighting in, without taking into account windage, elevation, trajectory, curvature of the earth, or that which long-range shooters that shoot over a thousand yards call bug-wing turbulence. He shoots inattentively, unintelligently, unreasonably, irresponsibly, and without a loving care for any objects that may cross the path of his bullet. That's what it's like for an untrained person to teach the Bible. Again, by giving this warning, I'm not saying that people should not read their Bible. In fact, I would encourage young people to memorize a short epistle like Second Peter, perhaps Second Peter itself. Or Third John, a very short epistle. Or Philemon, with a good translation like the New American Standard Bible or the Holman Christian Standard Bible. As the scripture says in Psalm 119.9, how can a young man, and we could say young woman too, how can a young person keep their way pure 
by keeping your word, it says. That's a catechism. How can a young man keep his way pure? The young man answers, by keeping your word, Lord. And in Psalm 119.11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. But in reading the Bible, one should also accompany their reading with prayer. Like the prayer of Psalm 119.18, open my eyes so that I may see wonderful things in your law. Another way of saying open the eyes of my heart that I may see Jesus in your word. Or in accordance with Luke 24, 45, this prayer, Lord Jesus, open my mind to understand the scriptures as you open the mind of your disciples. He will invariably answer. Jesus will answer you in one way or another. These testify of me. Lesson one, you can open my mind to understand the scriptures. Jesus said, I will. And I want you to know, first of, first of all, these testify of me. The Spirit will inevitably say in answer to your prayer, these are about Jesus. Of the scriptures, the Father will say, these are my testimony of my beloved Son. And that's the first lesson. The scripture in its totality is the testimony of Jesus. And we are urged in Paul's epistles, in fact, his epistle to the Colossians in verse 316, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Among Christians, there is an unfortunate movement that denies the need for pastors who teach the scriptures. This movement hangs its hat on 1 John 2.27 and verses like it. 1 John 2.27 says, The anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true, and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now this group fails to realize that 1 John 2.27 does not contradict Paul's epistle in Ephesians 4.11 and 4.13, which speaks of pastor teachers or shepherds who teach, who are a gift to the church until we all come in the unity of the faith to the measure of the stature of human maturity that is exemplified in Christ. That hasn't happened yet. Moreover, this group fails the test of context where John the Elder is telling them that no one needs to teach them to abide in Christ because they already know that. The same thing Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.9. You don't need me to teach you again to love one another. God's already taught you that. That doesn't rule out the need for apostles, prophets, pastors who teach, and evangelists. That's an arrogance that should be rebuked and reproved today. And so this group also fails 
to understand that 1 John 2.27 squares perfectly with John 6.63. What the writer is saying is, you don't need the flesh to teach you because the flesh can't interpret the word. No one's flesh, including your own, when you read the Bible in your arrogant independence. So, once again, this group fails to realize that 1 John 2.27 does not contradict Paul's epistle in Ephesians 4.11 and 4.13, which speaks of the need of pastors and teachers or shepherds who teach, who are a gift to the church until we all come in the unity of the faith. Moreover, this group fails the test of context where John is telling them that to abide in Christ has already been taught by God. He doesn't need to remind them of that, but he sure needs to remind them of a whole lot of other things which are in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, and Revelation. Now, the Messianic anointing, also known as the Spirit of Truth, continually assures them of this and urges their continuity in Jesus, as it does with us. On top of this, 1 John 2.27 squares with Jesus' words again in John 6.63, it bears repeating, the flesh profits nothing. So while it is true that no one in the flesh, including your own flesh and mine, can teach you, it is nevertheless equally true that human beings who are gifted by the Holy Spirit and trained and who continually study under the guidance of the Spirit are invaluable gifts to the church and necessary. Or would you rather just pick up that gun you don't know anything about and pull that trigger any which way you want? It is arrogance that engenders phony independence in those who would cancel the need and necessity for pastor teachers and pastor theologians. Now it's true. You've got to discern and use the spirit of discernment if you're going to be under a pastor teacher or receive his teaching. You have to pa- he has to pass the tests of orthodoxy, such as found in 1 John 4. He has to believe that Jesus has come in the flesh, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God and man, that his finished work on the cross was sufficient for salvation, etc. And so, of course, he has to pass the tests. But everybody needs a pastor-teacher in this age. So... This brings us to a rebuke of the phony independence and autonomy of those who deny the use of a pastor-teacher. They ooze arrogance, incidentally, and pride. They have placed themselves outside of an invaluable benefit and have walled up their path to spiritual maturity by denying pastors. This brings us right to a passage of Scripture which, like many things in Paul, is difficult to understand. This passage, not in Paul, but in Hebrews. It's also a passage which uneducated and unconverted teachers have twisted. And they do so like they usually twist the rest of the Scriptures for their own advantage, which is usually to control others by fear or by guilt. But as always, evil collapses under its own weight eventually, and their twisting and torturing of the living scriptures leads to their own ruination, 
which would be the end of their ministries if they have them or if they call them that, or at least ends their possibility of effectiveness for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And, of course, it also leads to the incineration of their works on the day of assessment. So I'm speaking of the very fragment of Hebrews that we just dealt with that prove our point, that the Bible is a dangerous book. Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. How could we put all of that together without the Holy Spirit? How could we put all the insights that have developed from Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 without the Holy Spirit? And how could we ever understand its meaning, its historical context, and its applications apart from the Holy Spirit as he's operative through gifted pastor theologians and historians? Pastors are not just people who are ordained, but they're gifted persons who are trained and educated, who study arduously from the original languages of Scripture, who have access to a voluminous theological library, who are called to study and teach to the point of exhaustion, and who do do so unrelentingly through times of prosperity and times of adversity. When their message is popular, and when it's dismissed or canceled and reviled, they keep on plugging. If someone is going to own a gun, to go back to our original analogy, and have it for self-protection, they need instruction from a trained and caring instructor, a police or military expert in firearms and safety, or an NRA instructor. If a boy or a girl wants to go hunting... They should be taught that a gun or a bow with arrows is a dangerous item. They should at least take a hunter's safety course. In fact, they ought to do so legally. They have to in Pennsylvania, and that's not a bad law. If someone is going to read and master the Bible, they must realize that it is a dangerous book. They need instruction by the divine author, and by human teachers and mentors who've paid their dues in preparation to teach the word and who keep on studying and teaching and giving themselves to prayer in that study. And whether we're teachers or those being taught, we must all clothe ourselves with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, whether you're a teacher or a student. That's found in 1 Peter 5, 6. I'm saying that Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 is a case in point. And I know we've been all over the place in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, and I almost want to apologize for it, but we had to. Exposition is a messy business sometimes. Exegesis is a kind of a disorganized mess until you finally get to its distillation phase. Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 is a dangerous fragment of Scripture. If it's handled carelessly or inaccurately, it can be deadly to the spiritual life and to life in general. A careful, contextual, and accurate handling of this passage leads to growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it does not lead to guilt or fear or obsessiveness. So, To our readers and hearers, readers of this message and hearers of it, I want you to note that I have a modified translation of Hebrews 6.4 because it captures what the author intends as being a rhetorical speech, part of a rhetorical speech. 
So please note the kind of change in tone and tenses in this passage to capture its rhetorical flair. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, I'm going to read it straight through. 6, 4 to 8, actually, read it straight through. For it would be impossible in the case of a category of persons who had once been enlightened, who had experienced the heavenly gift, and who had become companions of the Holy Spirit, who had tasted the good word of God and the dynamics of the age to come, and then, having fallen away, to renew them to repentance while they were crucifying to themselves the Son of God and exposing him to public shame. For ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and produces vegetation useful to those it's cultivated for receives a blessing from God. But if it brings forth thorn plants and briars, it is useless, about to be cursed, and will be burned at the end. Now I'll speak as a teaching pastor. If it seems like we've been all over the place in our exposition of Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 in our previous messages, it's because we have been. Exegesis and exposition is sometimes a messy business. We learned that in Revelation. My method of exegesis and exposition is a movement from obscurity to clarity. It has been necessary in our exegesis of this admittedly difficult passage to engage critically with a history of interpretations of this passage. There is that which should be taught in seminary or Bible colleges called a history of interpretation. Another aspect of my chosen method is to proceed from exposition to distillation. The distillation phase is what I call the penultimate phase or the second to the last phase of study of a given biblical document or passage of scripture. The ultimate phase is its application on the level of our time, that which I call by an acronym OTLOT, O-T-L-O-T, on the level of our time. To distill the essence of Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, it's important that we first observe that modified translation, which I will repeat. For it would be impossible, in the case of a category of persons who had once been enlightened, who had experienced the heavenly gift, who had become companions of the Holy Spirit, who had tasted the good word of God and the dynamics of the age to come, and then having fallen away, to renew them to repentance while they were crucifying to themselves the Son of God and exposing him to public shame. That implies that the, PT, that the act of apostasy would involve for this category of persons what amounts to a public renunciation of the confession they had made publicly of Jesus as the Son of God. So verse 7, for ground, this is an agricultural analogy for illustration, ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and produces vegetation useful to those for whom it's cultivated, receives a blessing from God. Blessing from God comes into focus also, Hebrews 6.13-16 to and 10.35. But if it brings forth thorn plants and briars, it is useless, about to be cursed, and will be burned at the end. Now in 6, 7, and 8, I'm going to entertain down the road a doctrine of a theory of history and three categories of humanity which make history either a progress, a decline, or a renaissance when it's needed. That's coming up, and I'll even ask for prayer that I can articulate that 
It ultimately will be an oversimplification of Lonergan's theory of history from the 1930s. This modified translation admittedly gives the passage the sense that it is speaking of a hypothetical category of persons. It is a prime directive of teachers to do this, just as the teaching Levites did according to Nehemiah 8.8, to give the sense they needed teachers. They were coming back from their deportation, as it were, into Persia, back to Israel. They needed Levites to teach them to translate the scriptures into their language, their native tongue, and then to give the sense. That's what teachers do in Nehemiah 8.8. They gave the sense of the scriptures so that the hearers would understand and so that the fruit of their understanding would be true joy. Nehemiah 8.8-10. That passage cannot be overestimated. Also relates to 2 Corinthians 1.24. Our job as pastor teachers is not to dominate your faith, but to be helpers of your joy. Jesus said the same thing. He said, I've spoken these things so that your, my joy will be in you. And as a result, your joy would be full. The real fullness of joy is the joy of Christ shared by the believer and the receiver of his words. In fact, I've been encouraged in the direction of a detailed exegesis of Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 to really, truly give the sense. It is speaking hypothetically. And I was convinced of that more and more by an accurate and grueling study of it. It is speaking hypothetically, or I think more precisely, the author is speaking rhetorically to get across a specific and principal point. And here's where I'm distilling the passage. The point is this. If such a category of persons actually existed and such a group, actually apostatized from the confession of Jesus as the Son of God. Such a group could not be renewed to the spiritual life that they had abandoned by offering the sin sacrifices under the old Levitical order. That's the point. Consequently, the purpose of this passage in which the speaker is admittedly, in verse 9 of Hebrews 6, speaking rhetorically. He says, even though I'm speaking in this manner. So the purpose of this passage, admittedly rhetorically by the author himself, is to set up the readers to be exposed to and appreciate the inestimable value of the great archpriesthood of Christ and his once and for all and forever sacrifice for sins. Now that is a distillation of that passage. It's no longer messy. It's no longer disorganized. It's no longer obscure. It's perfectly clear. And the agricultural analogy is added in 6, 7 to 8 for illustrative effect. So it's now understandable that the dispatch note that we noted in Hebrews 13:22 to 25, if indeed it was written by Paul, the dispatch note, was written just for that reason, that the intended readership would bear with the exhortation of such a passage, recognizing that its purpose is instructive for the reader to see very clearly and to appreciate very profoundly the absolute 
and universal efficacy of the self-offering of Jesus Christ and to see it by a comparison and contrast with the sacrifices that were offered in connection with the Mosaic Law. Sacrifices which had a very limited efficacy for the purification of the flesh in Hebrews 9.14, but no efficacy for the purgation of the conscience leading to efficacious service and a true and complete worship of the living God. So a proper interpretation of this and of all other scriptures results in the listeners or the readers increase in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the worshipful attribution of glory to him, that is true worship, both now and to the day of the age. Let's say just for purposes of stirring you up, even to the day of the third age. Second Peter 3.18b then can be compared, as I said before, with Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Glory is to be attributed to him now, as it was attributed to him yesterday, as it will be attributed to him throughout the ages to come, in which we will be revealed to be and manifested to be the objects of God's endless grace and kindness through Christ Jesus. So here's the gist of Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 as we close. If there ever was a group of Christians who departed from the living God and then saw the error into which they had entered, no sacrifice under the law could ever renew them to their former life in the spirit. They could only rebound off the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. That the PT was actually speaking rhetorically and that he was not describing this reader's situation or his reader's situation then or now is clearly stated in the next verses. We'll go there next, but here it is. Hebrews 6, 9, and 10, my translation so far. And I deliberately, or actually it wasn't deliberately, I just forgot, didn't add the word agapitoi in my previous renditions of this verse. I will now enter it. Now, even though we're speaking in this manner, beloved, we're completely persuaded, in your case, of the better thing. That is, the things that belong to salvation itself. In our next increment, I'm going to ask the question. Salvation, quits it. What is it? What is salvation itself? Quits it. What is its quiddity, its whatness, its essence? Next increment. And so again, here's 6, 9 to 10. Even though we're speaking in this manner, beloved, we're completely persuaded in your case which is other than that case in 6, 4 to 8, of the better things, that is, the things that belong to salvation itself. And then verse 10, for God is not unjust. Thank God somebody's not unjust today. God. God is not unjust to neglect your work and the love you showed for his name when you served the saints 
and you're still serving them. What a commendation. So as Peter used the word beloved to address his readers in 2 Peter 3.17, so the teaching pastor uh, addressed his readers with the same sobriquet. The pastoral writer is doing the opposite of what distorters of this passage would do. He is encouraging them that salvation itself is secure and that their work and love motivated service is not forgotten by their just and loving God. It seems that the Hebrews were in need of a pastor teacher. 